G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman, legal eagle, will writer and pop-tart popper. Today we are going to talk about disentitling conduct and deceased estates. And in particular, we're looking at the case of Adams versus Adams, which is a 2001 decision in the New South Wales Supreme Court. This case looks at a family provision claim, which is a claim by an eligible person to receive a greater share of a deceased person's estate. When considering such a claim, the applicant's own conduct may come into question. Historically, this was referred to as disentitling conduct, conduct by the applicant which would disentitle them to greater provision from the deceased person's estate. This was normally conduct directed towards the deceased person, but could also include conduct of the applicant that occurred after the death of the testator. While the New South Wales Succession Act does not refer to disentitling conduct specifically, the court may still consider the actions of the applicant when determining whether or not to make an order in their favour and, if so, how much provision they should receive from the estate. Going way back, disentitling conduct was things like adultery, or if the person was an alcoholic, or if a daughter married without her father's permission or had a child out of wedlock. More recently, conduct that may be considered to be disentitling is more like the neglect or abuse of an elderly parent, physical abuse or violent behaviour. And in some cases, it may be the abandonment or cutting off of the parent. In this episode, we are going to look at an old 2001 decision that involved a claim of disentitling conduct. I just want to warn you, though, that the law has changed since this case. So the arguments made in this case and the decisions made would now be presented differently and may result in different outcomes. Warning, this case involves discussion of child abuse and domestic violence. It may be triggering to some listeners, so if you'd prefer to skip this episode, that is okay. The background. Meryl Audrey Adams died on the 16th of April 1999. Her husband had died before her, but she was survived by their six children. In her last will, Meryl appointed her daughter, Jennifer, as her executor, and left her entire estate to Jennifer. She made no provision for her other five children. Three of the remaining five children applied to the court to receive provision from their mother's estate. Their names are Peter, Victoria and Debbie. The estate was a simple one, comprising mainly of Meryl's home at 15 Patricia Street, Rydalmere, which was valued at the time for $310,000. 20 years later and it's now worth about $1.3 million, but that's not relevant to the case. Jennifer paid the funeral and estate expenses from her own funds. Receiving the house under her mother's will would allow her to continue to reside in the house for the rest of her life. One of the other children, William, also lived in the house with Meryl and Jennifer, and Meryl had expected that if she left the house to Jennifer in her will, William would be able to continue to live there as long as he needed to. This was merely an expectation or a wish that Meryl had when she was alive. She didn't make this a provision of the will, it was not legally binding on Jennifer, 
but nowhere in the case does it indicate that Jennifer wasn't going to fulfill this wish. The court hearing. As I said earlier, Peter, Victoria and Debbie all applied to the court seeking to receive a share of their late mother's estate. Before she died, Meryl had written to her lawyers explaining why she had left her whole estate to Jennifer and nothing for her other children. In that letter, she stated that her reasons for leaving everything to Jennifer were that Jennifer had lived with her in the house for her whole life. She had shared in the renovations of the home, contributing about $30,000 of her own money. She also paid some insurance rates and outgoings. Merrill also explained why she made no provision for her other children, stating that Suzanne had not contacted her for 15 years and had cut off all contact. Peter left home when he was 17 years old and would only contact Merrill every few years. Merrill stated that two years before making this declaration, Peter had said to her, quote, The happiest day of my life will be the day you die. End quote. Victoria left home at 18 years old and told people she had no mother. She moved to Brisbane, cut off contact, and wouldn't let her children have a relationship with Merrill. Debbie left home at 18 years and never contacted her mother again. Someone contacted her when Meryl was ill and reported that Debbie said, quote, I don't want to see her ever, end quote. This is only what Meryl said in her letter at the time, and some would consider this to be disentitling conduct, but of course there are always different perspectives of human interactions. The children, including those who were not making an application for further provision from the estate, gave evidence that their mother had been abusive. Of course, the court rightly recognised that it is difficult to substantiate claims of abuse when the accused is not alive to defend herself. However, based on the evidence provided, the judge was of the opinion that some assaults had occurred. Vicky gave evidence that her mother would beat her, sometimes using a belt, and that when she was nine years old, her mother grabbed her by the hair, dragged her into the bathroom, and held her head and face under a shower. Vicky was placed in a psychiatric unit on a few occasions by her mother. In relation to this, the judge said that without any evidence, he could only conclude that she was institutionalised because she needed some treatment. Vicky later married, had two children and moved to Queensland. She still had contact with her mother, but after she moved, she found out that her mother had made a complaint to the Department of Community Services against her. Basically a complaint that Vicky was an unfit parent. The complaint led to nothing, but it did affect Vicky's relationship with her mother. Peter left home when he was 17 years old, but returned soon after at the request of his mother. Peter helped his father construct a double garage on the property and even paid some of the costs. The garage became his bedroom to allow his sisters to share the house. Around this time, Young Peter had a Studebaker, which was his pride and joy. He went to Queensland for a time, and while he was away, he claimed that his mother arranged for his car to be repossessed and sold, even though he was up to date on his payments. This caused a crack in his relationship with his mother, which was jackhammered wide open by her behaviour only a few years later. 
In the 1970s, Peter was married and had a son called Shane. When Peter's wife Judy was undergoing surgery, Merrill called the Department of Community Services to complain about the care Peter was providing to Shane. This resulted in Merrill being given custody of Shane and it was over a year of litigation before Peter and his wife got their son back. This experience also led to the breakdown of Peter's marriage and subsequent divorce. A week after her 18th birthday, Debbie left home in the middle of the night. She secretly ran away with her boyfriend, whom she later married. She ran away as soon as she was old enough, because she said her mother had been beating her, and also her mother didn't approve of her boyfriend. Debbie said that one night she came home with a ring that her boyfriend Rod had given her. She was asleep in bed and woke up to find her mother trying to pull the ring off her finger. She gave it back to Rod so her mother couldn't take it. She left as soon as she legally could and said she never saw her mother again. According to Debbie, after she ran away her mother told some of the neighbours that Debbie was on drugs when she was not. Merrill died on the 16th of April 1999, and Jennifer did not tell her brothers and sisters about the death. It was Merrill's wish that the other children not be notified. They found out later on. The judge stated that, quote, It is unfortunate, as it no doubt intensified what is clearly a very strong feeling of animosity between the various groups of the children, end quote. Wow, there was a lot of discord in this family. I believe the information contained in the judgment is only a portion of what was covered in the case, and only those parts that the judge found to be believable or particularly relevant. Even though the judge in this case found the evidence of the children to be believable, it doesn't mean that you have to. But it definitely illustrates the difficulty in finding the truth when presented with two opposing pictures of events. It is interesting that we really do have those two opposing pictures because Merrill had taken the time to write her letter of reasons for how she had drafted her will, and that is something that would normally not be available. In this case, that letter of reasons contained Merrill's evidence to the court that was available after Merrill's death. Merrill speaking from the grave, if you want to get poetic. To decide the family law applications, the court needed to regard the circumstances and decide whether Merrill ought to have made provision for the three applicants. Even though she had not made provision for five of her six children, the court only needed to consider those applications made by the three. The judge looked at the moral obligation that the deceased person had to provide for the eligible applicant. In doing so, there was recognition that community beliefs about moral duty to children changes over time. The judge also quoted an earlier decision of Justice Young, in which it was said that moral duty needed to be part of the case, but was not sufficient to justify provision. Quote, In theory, an order would not be made out of the estate of a deceased person in favour of a child who had over many years completely cut himself or herself off from the parent, even though the child was left in need. On the other hand, a wealthy child who had cared for the parent 
throughout his or her life, may have no claim for further provision under the legislation. The bare moral claims will not alone suffice to empower the court to make an order. End quote. This is a very interesting quote because I could find you cases of children who have cut off their parents for many years, decades even, who have still been given provision by the court. I might also be able to point to cases where a wealthy child has still received provision that recognised the greater care that child had provided to the parent. But brushing past that, it seems to be boiling down to parenthood alone does not necessarily create a moral duty to make provision, and moral duty alone does not lead to an order for provision. At the heart of it all, and influencing the decision of the court, is the relationship and the circumstances of the parties. In looking at this case, the judge noted that, in relation to Debbie, she had cut herself off from her mother. Yes, it may have been wise for her to do so, but that doesn't change that she made the decision to have nothing further to do with her mother. The judge said, quote, In those circumstances, I find it hard to see why there should be some provision for her. End quote. The judge said that the situation with Peter and Vicky was a little bit different. While Peter left home at 17, he came back at the request of his mother. Even after the incident with the car, something that affected his credit and later prevented him from getting a home loan, he did not abandon his mother. He introduced his wife and son to her. Even after the custody battle, he continued to visit his mother. It was only in 1991, about five years before her death, that following an argument about his daughter, he cut off contact with Meryl. Because of the greater efforts of Peter to maintain a relationship with his mother, the judge said, quote, I would not think it appropriate to exclude him, end quote. Vicky also had a fair bit to do with her mother for all of her life. Despite a history of abuse, it was only after 1991 when she found out about the complaint to the Department of Community Services that their relationship broke down. The judge also needed to compare all of this with Jennifer's relationship with her mother. They lived together for all of Jennifer's life, and Jennifer provided her mother with a lot of help over the years. But it also wasn't an easy relationship. The evidence did not present Merrill as someone who was easy to get along with. But in the end, it was Jennifer who had the burden of looking after Merrill, and the judge stated, quote, I think that there were difficulties between them, but I do not think that they were so substantial that it should really affect Jennifer's claim. End quote. In determining what provision to make for the applicants, the judge recognised Jennifer's entitlement as well, noting that, quote, The substantial work which has been done by Jennifer on the house, she has put in a lot of work and that has no doubt led to its value. The burden of looking after the deceased who was perhaps a somewhat difficult lady, who probably had a difficult life having to work a number of jobs to support six children after her husband died, fell upon Jennifer, end quote. Orders. The orders the court made was to make a legacy of $45,000 to Vicky a legacy of $35,000 to Peter 
and no legacy to Debbie, and she was ordered to pay her own legal costs. The legal costs of this case were the estate $19,000 and the applicants, the three children, $25,000. This meant that the house would have to be sold to cover the expenses or Jennifer would need to obtain financing. So just to sum it up again, the will left the entire estate to Jennifer. The entire estate was mainly the house, which was valued at $310,000. Debbie's application for further provision was unsuccessful and she was ordered to pay her own legal cost. However, Vicky and Peter were successful. Vicky to receive $45,000, Peter to receive $35,000 and their legal costs of $25,000 were also to be paid by the estate. Deducting those two legacies and the legal costs from the estate would leave Jennifer an inheritance of about $186,000. Lessons This is an older decision and also a shorter decision. It is interesting to consider what evidence and information wasn't included in the judgement. I felt that the family history was really glossed over and it could be that there was a lot of tension and drama and events that weren't really relevant or needed to be put on public record. But I can't help but feel that maybe we could have got a better sense of the parties and their relationship with each other. But regardless, this is the information we have. And I invite you to think about it and think whether you agree with this judgment, whether you disagree, how you feel about it. This case, to me, is like one of those ethical conundrums, one that doesn't have a definitive answer, but could be debated extensively, especially when you have six children that have different experiences growing up and different ongoing relationships with their mother. With only the facts that we have been provided, ask yourself, do you think Debbie should have been provided for? Do you think Vicky and Peter should? If so, do you agree with the amounts awarded? If you break it into percentages, Jennifer received about 68% of the estate instead of the 100% her mother wanted. How do you feel about this? Peter got about 13% and Vicky 16 Do you feel like this was too much, too little, given that both were estranged from their mother in her last five years? Also taking in account that those last five years were probably when she needed care and support the most. As I said, there is no answer, only the endless debate you can have in your mind and with your nearest and dearest. Or, of course, you can just say, that was the decision the court made and they're the experts, so let's leave it to them. That was the case of Adams versus Adams. I hope you found it interesting and I hope you'll join me for my next episode. <music>